Come on in. Good evening. Can you hear me? Aha, uh -huh, that's better. Welcome uh, to Centre for Contemporary Christianity's annual Catherwood Lecture, which is a lecture in honour of Sir Fred Catherwood um, to help us to think theologically about the public square. Congratulations on making it here tonight. Um, as you know, our initial venue was smoked out and uh, when we arrived this evening the ceiling had fallen in so anything can happen um, keep your wits about you let me tell you where the exits are <laughs> there's two that way there's one out this door or you can go out that door but it's that way if you need the comfort stop it's out this door and that way feel free to slip out we'll not say anything uh, my name is Cheryl Mabin. I'm the chair of the Centre for Contemporary Christianity in Ireland. And um, we're a small, uh, vir virtual and voluntary group. And here's our next technical difficulty. The virtual bit's not working. <laughs> we're having a nightmare with uh, our website. So hopefully that will be up and running again very soon. But in the meantime, if you try and type in contemporarychristianity.org, it's not going to work. Forgive us. Um, get our personal email addresses and contact us personally. I want to say thank you to Fitzroy for letting us use this building, particularly since we seem to have damaged it already. Um, it was very good of them to stand in at short notice and let us use their space and their heat and their excellent sound system. And uh, I hope that we'll be able to contribute something towards fixing things. Not, not that we actually did anything, I hasten to add. Um, but, but thanks to them. Uh, we want to say that we would have loved to be in Union College Chapel tonight and we extend our best wishes to uh, Union College and hope that the mess that they have to deal with following those fire, that fire, those fires, um, will soon be resolved and Somehow, it will all work together for good. A big thank you also to all of you for coming, because it's great fun very stimulating to meet people like Paul Moore and to arrange events like this. But of course, there's no point in having them unless you're here. We're very grateful to you for giving your time and being willing to stretch your, your thinking about our world to... Um, hopefully make it a better place. So thanks for coming. Let me just uh, tell you about a bookstall that's over here. Uh, for Contemporary Christianity in the past has uh, had research people who have who've produced books for us. Uh, most of them are free, so bargains on offer tonight over here. The only ones that aren't free are the most recent two. This one by David Campton and Nigel Bigger, Divided Past and Shared Future. And New Loyalties, which is about how the church relates or fails to relate to the loyalist community in our country. Both very interesting books and worth, worth a look. This one's a fiver. This one's a tenor. You couldn't invest better. Um, you also have in your seat flyers for our annual Advent reflections that we do to small gatherings on lunch, it'll be Wednesday lunchtimes in the city centre, uh, just to come along and make a point of being
being attentive to God and what God is saying to us through the incarnation. So if you can come or if you know people that work in the city centre that might like to come along to that, uh, please take as many flowers as you want and advertise. Mum would use that. We'll give up on that. Okay. I think that's nearly all I have to say. Um, this evening's uh, event is free. As you know, we, we let you in without um, taking your credit cards. Um, if you would like to contribute towards the costs of the event, uh, we'd be very grateful for that. There's a basket here and offering plates out at the back. And uh, you're very, very welcome to share with us in that way. Thanks to Stephen Adams and Peter McDowell for so much hard work behind the scenes. And thanks very much to Paul Moore for being who you are. Very interesting character. I hope you'll enjoy him. And uh, for being willing to come across and put the time in to share your experience and your thinking with us. Can we give a big welcome to Paul Moore? Is my mic working? Yes, it is. Good evening. I thought we'd start with um, just a very short prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see our God. The secret of the Lord is theirs. Their soul is Christ's abode. I will make you the light of the nations to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much indeed for uh, giving me the opportunity to uh, come and speak to you. Uh, there's quite a few things on, on the first slide. Uh, maybe at some stage or other I'll explain what the tanker and the uh, boat means and what the whistle means. Um, but the, our uh, agenda is going to start with the story. And it's always a little bit difficult because the story has me and my personality in the middle of it. Um, there's a sort of risk that I am trying to celebritize myself, but, but I'm not. You, you need to think of the story as a parable. And um, I will talk a little bit about... Uh, what it felt like to go through this experience. And then we'll get on to the heart of the topic, which is, can you reconcile mammon uh, and the common good? I'm going to talk a little bit about the social doctrine. I don't know how many of you know this particular set of thinking that's come from the Christian faith over a over hundred years, but I think you'll find it's uh, compelling and then I thought I might talk a little bit about some of the practical lessons. I don't know how many of you are in business, but I thought I might take those practical lessons and talk to you about them. But let's start with um, the best way of telling a story, which is to use the BBC. Can you just play the uh, DVD, please? We did test this about five times before we started. Uh, 
As embarrassing accusations go, that facing Sir James Green. Crosby couldn't have been much worse. The Deputy Chairman of the Financial Services Authority and trusted advisor to the Prime Minister had, when head of HBOS, sacked a senior manager who tried to warn him that the bank was taking unjustifiable risks. The man charged with regulating the banks had, in this accusation, been willfully blind to practices which brought one of the biggest of those banks to its knees. Sir James said his resignation had nothing to do with the accusations, first made public by our economics editor, Paul Mason. I'll be talking to him in a moment. First, though, Michael Crick reports. The financial crisis claims one more head. Emerging from his smart home in North Yorkshire this afternoon, Sir James Crosby, one-time advisor to Gordon Brown and now ex-deputy chairman of the Financial Services Authority. He's quit amidst claims that when he ran HBOS in the early noughties, he sacked a colleague for warning that the bank was taking too many risks. Paul Moore was the most... That whistleblower, Paul Moore, first told his story to Paul Mason on the money programme last October. It was his job to make sure... Interrupted again at the Commons Treasury Committee yesterday. Evidence from Mr Moore was raised as the former HBOS chairman was grilled by MPs. Your group risk manager said you were selling too fast, too much, uh, and that was very risky. You sacked him. Lord Stevenson's defence? I remember the incident very well. It was taken very seriously by the board at the time. Yeah. With the chairman of the audit committee attending, obviously doing it. By the fellow you sat. Yes. Can, I, can you please yeah, you hear can. me out? Um, and we commissioned an independent study into it. Last night on Newsnight, publicly for the first time, the whistleblower Paul Moore went into much more detail. I was head of group regulatory risk at HBOS. I realised that the bank was moving too fast and I raised those challenges very strongly at board level. When you raised concerns with the boss of HBOS, Sir James Crosby, what happened to you? Well, ultimately, I was removed and dismissed. Why? Well, I believe because I raised challenges with which uh, he was not comfortable. He said, of course, it was because I didn't fit in. Both HBOS and Sir James said those charges have no merit. They were examined, they said, by an independent inquiry by KPMG. But around 11.30 this morning, Sir James issued this statement. Whilst I am totally confident that there is no substance to any of the allegations, I nonetheless feel that the right course of action for the FSA is for me to resign from the FSA board, which I do with immediate effect. Who set up the regulatory system? just in time to diffuse the issue a little when, inevitably, it was raised at Prime Minister's questions. These are serious but contested allegations. In relation to Sir James Crosby, these are allegations that he will wish to defend. So it is right that he has stepped down as Vice Chairman of the Financial Services Authority. It is important that the Financial Services Authority show at this time that he is operating to the best standards possible. David Cameron smelt blood over a man who'd twice produced reports for Mr Brown. In the last half hour, Sir James Crosby, the man who ran HBOS and who the Prime Minister singled out to regulate our banks and to advise our government, has resigned over allegations that he sacked the whistleblower who knew that his bank was taking unacceptable risks. 
Does the Prime Minister accept that it was a serious error of judgment on his part to appoint him in the first place? Many here at Westminster think this has all the signs of being a quick government execution, that James Crosby was pushed to save prolonged embarrassment. But Downing Street refused to say whether Gordon Brown himself was involved in any way. The decision and timing were entirely matters for James Crosby, the Prime Minister's official spokesman said this afternoon. I'm not going to get into the specifics of any contact between the government and the FSA. Paul Moore, meanwhile, says that even if Sir James has quit, it's not the end of the matter by any means. I was surprised that he resigned so quickly and um, I was interested to hear him denying the allegations that uh, uh, I made in my evidence. And I want to make it absolutely clear that I firmly and confidently stand behind everything that I have uh, set out in my evidence, that I have detailed corroborative evidence to support that, and that the report on which he relies um, will not subject itself to proper independent scrutiny without uh, falling down like a house, house of cards. Tonight, in a statement, the FSA confirmed... They'd looked at Mr Moore's previous charges, but backed HBOS over the changes they'd made to their risk management at the time. Well, that's the uh, story in a nutshell. Um, a little bit about me. Could you go back to the slides, please? Uh, I, I was brought up as a, uh, a Catholic. I went to a private school in England called Ampleforth College. It's a well-known uh, monastery. Um, and uh, once I qualified as a barrister, I almost immediately started to specialize in financial sector regulation. In fact, I, I often say that I was in the UK doing this stuff before it ever began, because I was there before the first Financial Services Act in 1984. And... Um, uh, before I joined HBOS, uh, I was a partner at, in, at KPMG, which was the firm that did the report that uh, said I was wrong and they were right. By the way, KPMG were the auditors of HBOS as well, so it could hardly have been described as independent in, in any event. I want to say something about risk management. A lot of people have a, a paradigm, don't they, of risk management. It's all about forms. It's all about uh, the answers, no, now what's the question? Actually, I, uh, I think I've taken a lot more risk in my life than uh, a lot of people. I've climbed with a guy called Joe Simpson who wrote a fantastic uh, survival story called Touching the Void. I don't know if any of you read it. I have 650 hours flying on hang gliders. In fact, I met my wife on Christmas Day whilst flying in a hang gliding competition in Chile. I've motorcycled for 40 years. I've only fallen off four times. By the way, motorcycling is a jolly sight more risky than hang gliding, and horse riding is more risky than motorcycling. Um, risk management isn't about not taking risks. It's about understanding risks. Formula One is about the best example that I know of great risk management. You'll remember Michael Schumacher hitting the tyre wall at Silverstone at 180 miles an hour, and he broke a tibia. So it's possible to do really things that are apparently risky uh, without any real risk, if you think about it. The reality of my story is 
that I blew the whistle twice. I blew it back in 2004 when I was dismissed. I sought the protection of the uh, non-executive. I sought the protection of the regulator, uh, but none of it was forthcoming. But as I watched the banking crisis unfold, um, it became increasingly clear to me that I, had a, I hadn't finished my job of witnessing. And the words on the screen uh, are the words of an email I sent to Danny Savage. He's a member of our Catholic community in North Yorkshire. He's the correspondent for BBC News. And uh, these are the very words. Actually, in the same email, I specified very clearly. I'd, 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 I didn't want to do it with revenge in my heart. And I know I was, I was painted in some media uh, as if uh, my intention was to commit revenge. But that was never the purpose. The purpose was actually to show some very important tales and, and, and policies that we need to get right uh, and it's not just in banking, actually, it's in society as a whole. On the front screen, you'll remember, there was a picture of a rowing boat and a tanker. And uh, in that very first media interview I'd done, I'd never done any media in my life before, um, Paul Mason asked me uh, how it felt. And I said, well, I suppose it felt a bit like a man in a rowing boat trying to slow down an oil tanker. And so that's where those pictures uh, come from. And that was on the money programme on the 30th of October, 2008. It wasn't till the following February that I gave my, my detailed evidence to the uh, Treasury Select Committee. Uh, by coincidence, the 30th of October was my 50th birthday, the start of a new life, as it turned out. So <laughs> I... I um, gave the evidence on the 10th of uh, February. But how did I come to give that evidence? After I'd done the money program, I was trying to work out how to tell the story in a way that was appropriate, that actually had the most uh, traction on policy. And uh, I had a monk from Ampleforth, a, a good friend of ours called Father Matthew Burns, in my kitchen, uh, literally one week before the 10th. So it was on the 7th. And... Um, he asked me to buy him a telegraph. As I put the telegraph across the, new, the, the, the table, I saw they were going to interview the uh, chairman and chief executive of HBOS. I didn't realize it till then. And the voice came down and said, this is the time. This is, this is the moment. This is the place to witness. So I uh, went on Google, found the Treasury Select Committee, phoned up the clerk, told him a bit about the evidence. So it wasn't as if I'd spent a huge length of time trying to work out how to do it. And I didn't even realize quite how important it was going to be. I thought it was important, but I didn't think it was that important. So I left my other two children. I've got 19, 17 and a half, and 15. Um, the, the, the two were doing their, their big exams. So I took my other son down to Bristol, and I'd sent a copy of the evidence, 5,002 words. There's a limit of the number of words you can write. Uh, it took me literally five or six hours to write this. It just sort of came into the... Into the and um, he said, you've got to come up and give the interview. So I'm just going to give you a little few extracts from my evidence. You can see all of it. It's public knowledge. It's on the Treasury Select Committee website if you want to read it. There was a lot of um, the uh, almighty in some of these words. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to say read uh, this stuff to you, but I, I suppose um, these words at the bottom 
were the words, I, these are verbatim, they're not uh, words I, 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 these are the words I said to Lord Dennis Stevenson, the chap you saw on the DVD, uh, rather sort of uh, nervous about the, the situation, that uh, very careful consideration should be given as to exactly what level of sales growth, because that was their strategy, it was a sales strategy, uh, is achievable given current capacity without putting customers and colleagues at risk. And colleagues at risk is a Morse code for the bank. It's not at all difficult to understand banking. Don't let anybody tell you that banking is a complicated thing. It isn't. If you lend money to people who haven't got any income, haven't got any assets, and haven't got a job, and you get a credit rating agency to stamp it, well, they got paid by the issuer of the bond to stamp it as if it was a good... Nobody needs to know anything about that. It's obvious. I said that the... Although the proximate cause of the crisis was when everybody realised that these subprime loans were worthless and that therefore the balance sheets of the banks, you didn't know what they were worth and therefore nobody would lend any money to anybody. Um, it was more about an inadequate separation and balance of powers. And when we get on to the, the, the real question of tonight, I'll talk about how you balance solidarity and subsidiarity. Solidarity meaning our duty to help people who cannot necessarily look after themselves, along with um, subsidiarity, which is uh, you know, controlling, controlling uh, things that shouldn't go wrong. I think this was the most important point I made. And um, culture is the problem. And... Um, We'll talk a, quite a lot more about that in a minute. But um, you can have uh, any structure, you can have any committee structure, you can have any forms, you can have any m numerous pieces of paper, but none of it works unless there's a proper, true culture that operates. That's only a very small few sections. Now, you wouldn't expect me, would you, to, as a barrister to make allegations of such senior, uh, such serious, ma uh, serious level if I didn't have evidence. And um, I, I used the expression on the Newsnight report, I realised. It wasn't realisation. I'd had evidence. I'd gone and done a very substantive check of what was happening in the bank. In fact, I was required to do it by our regulator. And he uh, here are some of the bits of evidence that underpin the allegations that I made. The uh, head of the uh, risk management fraternity within the Halifax, which was the largest part of HBOS, I'm a good note taker because I'm, I'm a barrister, leadership and focus has had no priority, sales are regarded as more important than anything, risk management not seen as a core business imperative or competence, and you know there are animals around here. That's a cultural statement. The... Um, Chief Operating Officer of the Halifax had a nickname which he was celebrated with, Wacker. Now, there's 
private nicknames, which are also culturally indicative, and there are publicly celebrated nicknames. So the chief executive of uh, Lehman Brothers, Dick Fould, was called the Gorilla. Um, my nickname is the Mad Monk. <laughs> so <laughs> tells you something about me. Um, I don't know if any of you saw the incredible program by the BBC called uh, The Love of Money, when Dick Fold was caught on camera, an internal camera, talking about those who were short-selling Lehman's stock. In other words, they were making a bet that Lehman's stock would go down, and he said, I'm going to reach in, I'm going to rip out their hearts, and I'm going to eat them before they die. Now, it's not appropriate that people who behave like that run large, complicated, societally important um, businesses. We found a manager. We had uh, a, a huge exercise in interviewing people, both as individuals and in focus groups. And there was a manager who designed an incentive or disincentive program for his branch. He paid people who hit their sales targets a cash bonus on the Saturday afternoon, and he awarded publicly a cabbage to those who missed their sales targets. That's how bad it was. Charles Dunstan, a very charming man, the founder of the Carphone Warehouse, a very uh, good entrepreneur, was appointed to be the chairman of the Risk Control Committee of the Halifax. 43,000 staff, 1.7 billion profit, a huge business. I went down to see him to do the interview with one of my, um, my uh, deputies, and as we walked in the door, he said, I'm glad you two are here, he said, because I'm not entirely sure I know how to be the chairman of the Risk Control Committee. He had no apparent competence to do that job, um, certainly no technical competence, and certainly not the right type of personality to challenge a very powerful executive in what they were doing. He was put there as a veneer. In fact, he was a very close personal friend. The other story about Charles Dunstan was that um, uh, he, um, <laughs> we'd interviewed uh, Andy Hornby and asked him what kept him awake at night. It doesn't really matter exactly what he said. He said, product A. And when we asked uh, Charles Dunstan the same question, what do you think of product A? He said, oh, I've got nothing to worry about about that, he said. I was only assured about that last week by Andy Hornby. That's how bad the system of balance and control was in these banks. Um, I was uh, fired by James Crosby on his own. Now you just think about that as an idea... If you're going to fire your head of risk management, the first thing you'd do is take a bit of risk management advice, wouldn't you? You might involve your head of HR. That, as just a little picture of the way his mind worked about his unfettered power, uh, gives you a flavour of what he was like. This is the statement of the competence framework for top leaders at HBOS. Which proves the point that you can have uh, a veneer. You know, 
are the Pharisees. They know all the rules, but they never lift a finger. Same thing. Look at this. Uh, the key behaviours required of a top leader. Taking courageous decisions, even when they may result in criticism or unpopularity. Perhaps they should have added, or being dismissed to that list. Standing up for beliefs in the face of opposition. Saying what... etc. I mean, I don't need to read it to you. That's the incredible... It's not an irony, it's a dishonesty. Anyway, here's some funny bits. Uh, this was the... Um, I, I went up to London on that Tuesday because Paul Mason asked me. I did those interviews that you saw on the DVD... And uh, I got back on the train to go back to Bristol, and I saw this sitting on the... And at my first, I sort of read the headline, and I didn't sort of... I just thought, what, what's that about? And then I realised, actually, they were talking about me. And the Brown's advisor is James Crosby, because he advised the, the, the government on mortgages and, and financial regulation. And I was supposedly the banker who got it right. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, as you might expect. These weren't my exact words, but they're not far off. Anyone not blinded by money, power, and power would have seen problems piling up at the banks. At the back of the pack, which you'll eventually see on the website, you'll see the real words I used. So he resigned. They denied my allegations. I repeated that statement. I stand firmly and confidently and calmly behind everything that I've said because this report on which they rely will not withstand scrutiny. I got rung up on the 11th, which was the day after the evidence when Crosby resigned, by the FT at 8.30 in the evening. And she said, we've got the KPMG report. I said, good. I'd have sent it to you myself. I've got nothing to worry about there. But it says you're extraordinary. You rant and you're prickly. What have you got to say about that? I said, well, in the words of Mandy Rice Davis, they would say that, wouldn't they? She just laughed. And I said, if it is extraordinary to raise a cultural indisposition to challenge, I'm extraordinary. If repeating yourself several times because people aren't listening to you is ranting, then I'm a ranter. And if saying things that people don't like is prickly, then I'm a prickly person. She said, don't worry about the article tomorrow. It'll all be not a single article. Because it was a self-evident truth that either I was a lunatic... And I didn't have any evidence for the things I was saying. Or I cared more about James Crosby and the organisation and the shareholders and the, and the customers than I cared about myself. That's a self-evident truth. And that was my motivation. My motivation was because I cared more about the organisation than I cared about my personal life or my reputation or any of that stuff. Look at them. They've, uh, they all called for investigations. There hasn't been an investigation into anything, into anybody. Not a single government minister has been held to account. Not a single regulator has been held to account. Not a single board director. And you know why? Because political parties are funded by private money. I've seen Ken Clark. He sat in front of me and said, your allegations demonstrate wrongdoing. I didn't do this for revenge, but I did hate the sin. And 
When he went back to see David Cameron and George Osborne and they added up the pros and cons of the consolidation of power, they decided perfectly obviously, and I've got the email that proves it, that uh, calling for an investigation, what was the right thing to do? Gordon Brown said, they're serious allegations. He will want to contest them. He didn't contest them. He hasn't had to contest them. Not a single peep out of any single one of them. Not one. Deathly silence. This was the Daily Mail on the 14th of February. Wonderful article she did. I was Heather... uh, um, Helen Weathers she did a really really beautiful article and um, that was the Sunday Telegraph there's me with the whistle and I'm now going to show you the whistle the whistle you saw on the front slide was sent to me in an anonymous envelope it's a Metropolitan Police whistle on a silver chain, and on the side is uh, engraved Dulce et decorum est pro patria testari, which means it's sweet and honourable to speak up on behalf of the fatherland. Did anybody hear the interview I had with Michael Burke on the choice? Because I blew it, and I'll blow it again. <whistles> Very nice sound, actually. <laughs> Look, by the way, James Crosby often looked like that. And if body language tells you anything... By the way, he's a perfectly decent bloke. I've got nothing against What they do is they leave their values at home. The love of money and power takes them over. And this is a really important point that we're going to talk about in a minute. This was an unfair article. I made it absolutely clear to Maggie Pagano that revenge wasn't my thing, but the editor took over. And then... Brown will have to go, says H-Boss official. I, I never said anything of the sort. Right, here are some conclusions from the Treasury Select Committee, which I think are beautiful, if you have any chance to. Bankers have made an astonishing mess of the financial system. Banks have failed because those leading them and managing them failed. By the way, they're right back to business and bonuses as usual. And we'll talk about that. You want to see significant shortcomings in risk management in the acquisition by Lloyds of HBOS. I mean, who was advising them on that risk, the risk management of that? Extraordinary. The evidence shows that many non-executives fail to act as an effective check and challenge to manage. Non-executives have operated as members of a cosy club too true. Two weeks before I was fired, the chairman of the audit committee to whom I reported sent me an email telling me what an outstanding job I was doing. What did he do? He just turned turtle. I'm going to put on the website a document which if any of you are involved in governance in any way is worth reading because there is a read across to any industry Um, you know you might think when you see me standing here tonight well he took this all in his stride Mm -mm. 
No. You know, it was a real old journey. And um, I'm really pleased it happened to me now. But it was hard when it did happen. I said on the choice, I was standing out on the street after Crosby fired me about 15 minutes later, and I phoned my wife. And uh, I said, you're not... He fired me, he fired me. Oh, she said, don't worry, it's all part of God's plan. (laughs) I thought she was a lunatic, but actually she turned out to be right. It's a funny thing that 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 happens. It made me, it introverted me for a while, and I'm a very extreme extrovert by nature. And it was a good thing, because it forced me to think what it was that was really important. And... um, I was really, although I'm a Catholic by background, and I'm slightly nervous about sort of, you know, being a Catholic uh, here, but I want want you to know that my real inspiration for refinding my faith, and I didn't refind it till 99, really, were two uh, amazing people. A guy called Rick Warren, who wrote a book called A Purpose Driven Life, that uh, was tremendously well, th- well three things actually number one I read the gospels and the bible you know, right into the original source and just the, just the basic words were so clear to me the second was reading uh, uh, Rick Warren's A Purpose Driven Life the third was an amazing Christian evangelical preacher called Joyce Meyer I don't know if any of you have heard her stuff but if you haven't have a go. I started with, I was given by a Catholic friend, Believing, in, believing God, it's called. It's a brilliant thing. And she, she had a, a CD called You Don't Defeat Goliath With Your Mouth Shut. And she says, Goliath said to David, I'm going to you know, feed you to the birds or whatever it is. And Goliath said, no, you're not. So this business of, of you have to speak out through your mouth uh, what it is that's in your heart. So that was very important. But you know what was amazing was, and uh, I was a one-man press office, and I did every interview under the sun. I had complete energy. I had complete calm. I had no fear. It was like a feeling of um, a kind of, you know humble exaltation type of feeling. And these are the people that, um, and some of the comments, that uh, this, is, this is from Rick Warren, we only grow by taking risks, and the biggest risks we ever have are being honest with ourselves and others. It's a big, big job to examine yourself and to help others, and help them with Compassion in your soul. If I lose my reputation, that's at least one thing I'll have to worry about. I think that's a brilliant one, that. And uh, you get transformed by trouble. Uh, When I do this uh, talk to uh, students, I, I call it the truth will set you free. Never give up the truth for power or reputation or money. Right, how are we doing for time? All right? Right, let's get down to the nitty-gritty of this thing. 
Um, 500 verses on faith or prayer, but 2,350 verses in the Bible on money and possessions and wealth. You'll all recognize some of these um, uh, up there. There's a lot more. There's that one in Luke's Gospel about you have to kind of fraternize with them. I don't know exactly the words of it, but... um, So, um, I think I've given you enough time to read these. I call these Jesus' biggest gripes. Oh, ye of little faith. If only you just had a little bit more faith, you'd be amazed. You know that fellow who went into the reform club in whenever it was and said, this slavery business, it's got to stop. Somebody said, would say to him, you're out of your cotton-picking mind. It can't stop. But if you guys have faith, and if we have faith, we can change what's happening around here. We can change it, because guess what? All of you agree with it. You all agree that where we've got to is not right. Leaders who lord it over people. It shall not be thus with you. He who wants to be first will be last. And those Pharisees, he didn't half lose his temper with them, didn't he? I mean, he kind of, I mean, sometimes he was downright rude. I mean, I often wonder whether you fools or whatever the words were that he used when he talked about, he actually used those. I have to tell you, I did not refer to James Crosby as a fool, because he wasn't a fool. But the point is, he spoke truth to power, and we're going to have to start speaking truth to power. Because the power has gone mad and wrong. The love and misuse of money. You know, those deadly sins, that deadly sin. Money is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. The banking crisis just sums it all up, as does everything that's happened after the banking crisis. They're still... They know all the rules. They know how to write a report. David Walker issued a report today on governance. It did do some good, and it is a bit better, uh, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. Don't we live in a world in which, frankly, the happiness is something that actually is slavery? Me, more, now. Power, possessions, pornography. You know, I can't get no satisfaction. That's the Rolling Stones. The, this, this was a, an advert for a credit card. Take the waiting out of the wanting. We really have got to change the way we are. You're worth it. What do you think of that? I mean, what about some child in Africa? Are they worth it? We spend more money on ice cream in Western Europe than it would cost to feed the entire world. They spend more money in two weeks 
on weapons in America than it would cost to feed the entire world. We have gone mad. They're not the great and the good, they're the great and the bad. We cannot reconcile the love of money with the common good. But we can reconcile money with the common good. This is very important, and a lot of people miss it. These are the words, I don't know whether they're the translations that you use. Uh, it is more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. His disciples were astounded and said, in that case, who can be saved? Jesus gazed at them. I mean, can you imagine that? He sort of, can you imagine that sort of moment when he sort of looked at them slowly? By human resources, it is impossible, but not for God. With God, everything is possible. Now, conscious as I am of the, um, the fact that the social doctrine was written by the Catholic Church, I really beg of you to have a look at it, because it's not about Catholicism, it's not about Christianity, it's actually about something for all men of goodwill. And I'm going to put on the website some extracts. It started with some pope back in the 1880s, and has worked its way all through, and there's been a huge amount of beautiful thinking, and I am not joking about that. You need to have a look at it. It's um, a great model that we can uh, look at, and I'm going to take you through, these are not my words, these are words directly from two documents. One is called the Compendium of the Social Doctrine, which was something that John Paul put together, because I think it can inform all of our thinking. John Paul saw all this stuff and said, look, I want a summary of it. And it's literally 280 pages. You know, it, it's a little bit papal gobbledygook in places, but it's really good. And the other thing I'm going to show is a bit about the encyclical that was recently um, written. So this is a few comments about economy and uh, morality. The moral dimension of the economy shows that economic efficiency and the promotion of human development in solidarity are not two separate or alternative aims, but one indivisible goal. If economic activity is to have a moral character, it must be directed to all men and to all peoples. Business and its goals... The social doctrine of the church recognizes that the proper role of profit as the first indicator that a business is functioning well. This is not a loony, lefty kind of uh, manifesto. It very much believes in the market economy. When a firm makes a profit, this means that productive factors have been properly employed. But this does not cloud her awareness of the fact that a business may show a profit while not properly serving society. And we've seen a bit of that. This is about the free market. It's an institution of social importance because of its capacity 
to guarantee effective results in the production of goods and services. While recognizing the market as an irreplaceable instrument for regulating the inner workings of the economic system, points out the need for it to be firmly rooted in its ethical objectives, which ensure, and at the same time, suitably circumscribe the space, space with which it can operate autonomously. And this is where you'll begin to understand the common good is the goal, solidarity and subsidiarity are the balancing act that we have to find. We haven't found that yet. Now, what should a state do? The action of the state and of other public authorities must be consistent with the principle of subsidiarity. That means letting people do what they want to as a free people and create situations favourable to the free exercise of economic... It must also be inspired by the principle of solidarity and establish limits for the autonomy of the parties in order to defend those who are weaker. With a view to the common good, it is necessary to pursue always and with untiring determination the goal of a proper equilibrium between private freedom and public action. This is interesting. This is uh, some of the comments that are made about you as consumers and how you need to be. Purchasing power must be used in the context of the moral demands of justice and solidarity. People don't want to buy goods or services from companies that are bad. Now, you know, we've seen examples of Primark and other companies. You don't want to do that. The phenomenon of consumerism maintains a persistent orientation towards having rather than being. It's beautiful stuff, isn't it? Globalization gives rise to new hopes, whilst at the same time it poses troubling questions. Globalization is able to produce potentially beneficial effects. We're in a very, very important moment in society's history. If the consequence of the Industrial Revolution by those who believed in greed and power was child labor and slums and poverty, and a few Quakers said, this is wrong, let's sort it out, we've got to do the same in the post-knowledge revolution. We have to make a change to the way we think and what we do. Long words and... Oops. A financial economy that is an end unto itself is destined to contradict its goals since it is no longer in touch with its roots and has lost sight of its constitutive purpose. Papal gobbledygook, but I think you know what it means. One of the fundamental tasks of those actively involved in international economic matters is to achieve for mankind an integral development in solidarity. That is to say, it has to promote the good of every person and the whole person. Now here's a few quotes before we get to the final message about from the latest encyclical from Pope Benedict. Now, he's an extraordinary writer. I'm just reading his book on Jesus at the moment. It's well worth a read. 
He really is an amazing writer. He's not nearly as difficult to read as John Paul. Uh, I think this is um, uh, extraordinary stuff that he writes. This is for us. There is a need for the deep thought and reflection of wise men in search of a new humanism which will enable modern man to find himself anew. Profit is useful if it serves as a means towards an end that provides a sense. If it is produced by improper means and without the common good, it risks destroying wealth and creating poverty. I know this is tough stuff, and it's, you know, I'm giving you some real meat here. The complexity and gravity of the present economic situation rightly cause us concern, but we must adopt a realistic attitude as we take up with confidence and hope the new responsibilities to which we are called by the prospect of a world in need of profound cultural renewal, a world that needs to rediscover fundamental values on which to build a better future. The crisis thus becomes an opportunity for discernment, that's this crisis he's talking about, the financial crisis, in which sh to shape a new vision for the future, in this spirit, with confidence rather than resignation, it is appropriate to address the difficulties of the present time. Moreover, the human consequences of current tendencies need to be carefully evaluated. This requires further and deeper reflection on the meaning of the economy and its goals, as well as a profound and far-sighted revision of the current model of development, so as to correct dysfunctions and deviations. Today's international economic scene, marked by grave deviations and failures, requires a profoundly new way of understanding business enterprise. This is very important, this, this last point. You will all have read the Bible. There is no discontinuity between doing and being good and abundance. You can run and lead a successful economy being good and doing good and getting abundance. I am totally confident that. I've been doing some work with a professor at Sheffield University. John Lewis is, is an example of a family-oriented trust-based business of integrity with huge excellence. I don't know if you have John Lewis's in, in Northern Ireland. But when you go to uh, the other side, you will find the most wonderful people talk to you. And, you know, I know they give this thing that says never knowingly undersold, but you don't care. You simply don't care because you want to do business with people like that. Right. Let's get to the end of this rather lengthy diatribe. There's a message of hope. Honestly, there is a message of hope. It's often the case at a dark moment that there is a message of hope. We all know, it doesn't matter whether you're a person of faith, whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, people of no faith, we're all people of goodwill. There's a huge groundswell of opinion that we've got to change the way we have been. 
You know, we worship these gods of me more now for too long, and we've got to make a big change. We've got a real problem. By the way, you see this little thing here? Well, you'll see it there. That's my little advisory firm. There's only two of us. <laughs> but, uh, it stands for Caritas, Veritas, Justitia, and Libertas. You know, typical Catholics. They speak in Latin. But basically, it means charity, trust, truth, justice, and liberty. And I'm determined to use the rest of my life in the, in the, uh, the, the work of, uh, of our Father. And there's so much for us to do. This is a most important point. Politics have got to move on. By the way, we have got to get involved in politics with a small p, and some of us, unfortunately, with a big P. Because there's no... Why is there no political will to do what's right? Because the political parties are funded by private interests. You look at the difference between Denmark and Canada and what happens here in the United States of America. We have got to change political funding. If I want to be a public servant, it's fine for me to be funded by the public to do so, so long as I can prove I've got enough support behind me, and I'll put my money behind that. But when you try to do anything to the bankers, here's the headline today in your newspaper, banks still call the shots as the rest of us are left to foot the bill. This is from your local newspaper. Nothing has happened of any meaningful nature. You know why? Because when they add up where the money comes from, where the power and influence is, where the great and the bad exist, they're not going to take them on. That's why there was no investigation into the allegations I made. I like this... Oh, dear. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but what I mean is I came up with this expression. We measure everything in our lives by GDP. How many times do you hear GDP? Oh, the GDP has gone up by 0.04, oh, 2.1%. G-me-p. G-me-p. Where are the indicators of everything else that matters to us? They don't exist. We have one key performance indicator, money. Let's move on. I'd like to, I was going to call it the GCG, Gross Common Good. But I started off with GQP, gross quality, GUP. And we can, we can all have a jolly good debate about what we want in that, in that list of important things. But it isn't spending more money on ice cream in Western Europe than it would cost to feed the world. Nobody believes in that. Not a single person believes in that. You don't believe in that. I've never met a single person that I've ever met who says it's okay for us to spend more money on ice cream in Western Europe than it would cost to feed the entire world. 1% of the GDP, of the G20, would pay for clean water, food, basic medical care, uh, uh, um, shelter, and basic education of the entire world. And yet we, over here, have 85% of everything. And none of you believe that. Nobody, nobody believes that, except the great and the bad. When are we going to speak up? This is the most powerful sent paragraph in the latest encyclical by the Pope. And I appeal to you 
to become these people. Development is impossible without upright men and women, without financiers and politicians whose consciences are finely attuned to the requirements of the common good. Both professional competence and moral consistency are necessary. When technology is allowed to take over, the result is confusion between ends and means, such that the sole criterion for action in business is thought to be the maximization of profit, in politics the consolidation of power, and in science the findings of research. We've got to find, by the way, they are there. Those upright women, men and women are there. They're everywhere. All we've got to do is lift the lid off it, mobilise it, and we will do what Wilberforce did when he went into that uh, reform club and said, slavery has got to end. We, ha we are in a kind of slavery, a different sort of slavery, but it is a similar thing. Look, I don't know whether we've taken too long... But uh, this, the, I do three slides on, as a business person, to business people, what are the things that you should concentrate on practically, taking that out of the kind of faith discussion back into the world of practicality. And um, uh, how are we doing for time, Stephen? I mean, because we can leave people to read this. Fine. I'll, I'll tell you what we'll do. There are three areas if you're business leaders, that you need to think about. One is culture. That's the single most important area. Forget the process. Forget the number of committees you have. Forget the number of forms your people fill in. If you want to do risk management, governance, regulation and ethics properly, start with culture. The second is, don't put people advising you on risk management and governance who've never taken any risk, who like forms and bureaucracy. The third is, there are some important structural points. Remember, you must balance and separation. If you run your own business, the last thing that you want when you are at your greatest risk is your non-executive director to let you get away with it. You want them to look you in the eye and tell you what you need to know. It's at the moment you are at your greatest risk that you need somebody to challenge you for that self-evident truth point. Right, we're there. I found this picture. Very famous picture. Le prêteur et sa femme. The banker and his wife. By a uh, Dutch or Belgian or Flemish painter. Now, we've got various different things. Money, scales, uh, the lady, the wife reading the devotion, the mirror, pearls and so on. And this is what it means. The painting condemns avarice and exalts honesty. So you can have a look at that as well. There's a painting that sums it all up from hundreds of years ago. I think that's it. I think that's it. Paul, cool. Robert, well, don't sit down, because I'm no. sure there will be people who no. would like to engage with you on things you have said or things that they think you said or things that they would like you to have said. So I've got a roving mic. Have you any questions? 
They're all stunned. Oh, there's one. It's like that Monty Python. He's only stunned. I don't know whether it's really a question or a comment, but I'd like to, to, you to give your views on it. If to challenge, we're, challenge, we're challenging power. We're challenging this power that of sinful power of humanity, uh, which means that we are, in, as a church or as disciples of Jesus, will be engaging in power ourselves. Now we know that he has a different view of power. It's an upside down view compared to uh, the power we've been talking about. Uh, and that's, that's very difficult and, and to do it from the basis of humility in a world that doesn't really admire that and get, or get listened to. I suppose at the end of the day, it's like uh, what was her, uh, the, the, the powerful movement on the streets in, in uh, Philippines with Carl Aquino. You know, it's just numbers count. And, but, you know, we, we, how do we avoid falling into the trap ourselves of engaging in sort of a power struggle and getting tainted? You keep your eye well and truly on the Lord your God. And you pray. And you pray for a humble and contrite heart. And you, you're right these things ultimately are a matter of the Holy Spirit. And the, the Philippines, the Philippines uh, revolution, once everybody realized that everybody agreed, the overwhelming power of the lowly was powerful enough. But that doesn't mean you don't sometimes need a powerful leader. And, and Jesus was a very, very powerful leader. He was inspirational to the ordinary people, but he spoke truth to power. That's what led to his death, ultimately. You know, he wouldn't put up with nonsense. So, yes, and he wasn't, you know, he was a humble person, but he, he, he did lose his patience sometimes. And it's right to lose your patience with the wrong actions. I don't think he ever didn't love people. And maybe the the writers of the Gospels slightly exaggerated his uh, behaviours, I don't know. But I agree with you, it's not easy. I mean, when you stand on a stage and you talk about yourself, you know, you have to go home and you have to read night prayer and pray for a humble and contrite heart because it's not easy. But that's what, the, that, that, that's what these temptations are for. Money is there as a temptation to you to overcome. Vanity is a temptation there for you to overcome. Lust. By the way, none of you be under any illusion that I have not sinned badly, badly, badly in many places in my life. Don't ever get that idea. But uh, you've got to keep your eye on God. You're all very quiet. John. Uh, I want to take you back into the timeline of your story because I wasn't entirely clear uh, on what year. You, you want to sit down somewhere? You're making me uncomfortable sitting there because I think you're uncomfortable. <laughs> I want to take you back into the timeline because I'm not entirely clear in the timeline at what year you were sacked. 2000, end of 2004. 2004. Now, you had been head of risk management for how long at that stage? Uh, 2002 till 2000, the end of 2004. And, and in none of those two years, you came to the conclusion that the risks were too high. Yes, and on the basis of 
technical forensic evidence, not on the basis of conjecture. Right. Now, uh, then you bring your conclusions to, to the board? To the board and the, and the group audit committee. Right. And what do they say to you when you get there? Now, two questions. What did they say to you when you got there, to the board or those bodies that you had to report to? And what difference would it have made had they acted on the advice that you were given to them? What difference would it have made to each <laughs> boss had they acted on your advice? Right. These are not hostile what? questions, you understand. Right. No. So, um, what did they say when I raised the uh, questions with the board? And uh, what would have happened if they listened to me? It was quite amazing because on the 27th of July 2004, when I sat opposite Lord Dennis Stevenson and made the four points that I made, and the last one about you've got to reconsider your strategy for sales growth, immediately after I'd finished my intervention, he said, finally we've got ourselves a decent risk manager who's prepared to tell us what we need to hear. I thought, thanks be to God. Because it wasn't, uh, you know, it didn't come without any nervousness. When the minutes came out from the meeting, nothing that I'd said were in them. So I thought, well, I'll table the full version of the report that, uh, on the audit committee meeting in October. So we had March, June, o October, December were the standard days for audit committees. So I raised that. And the chairman of the audit committee said to me, Thank you very much, Paul, for putting your full version of your report to the audit committee. Now at least I realise how risky things are. So the answer to your first question is, it appeared as if they'd listened. But James Crosby didn't like it because it was questioning his strategy. And he decided of his own accord that he was going to get rid of me. Right. So what would have happened if they had listened to me? And I was asked this question before, as you can imagine. If they had genuinely listened and we'd genuinely done what we needed to do, I am absolutely confident that we would have found a way through the problem because the biggest problem when you slow down is the analysts attack you. So what you have to do, and I've been doing this for a long time, is you have to go to the regulator and you say, you've got a choice, regulator. Either you're going to slow everybody down at the same time or we're going to carry on. So you have to enter into an engagement with the regulator. You have to demonstrate to them that, it, it is, that, that there is a contagion risk across the market, a systemic market risk, which it was absolutely clear there was. HBOS's wholesale funding requirement, that is the requirement to borrow money above its deposit base of its, in, its uh, bank, uh, bank deposit holders, was £238 billion of which 60% had to be refinanced within 12 months. That's 150 billion. That's one and a half times the cost of the National Health Service. HBOS was more often than not in the top 10 wholesale borrowers in the world, including sovereign governments. And one year, it borrowed more than the Italian government. So the answer is, if they truly listened... I would have found a way to have protected them against the analyst risk, as I call it, by 
explaining to the regulator that they had no choice but to slow everybody down and to reduce the allowable amount. They would have to increase the capital requirements of all banks depending on the percentage of wholesale funding requirements that that were required to fund those banks. You only need to do a very simple spreadsheet. Uh, What happens if liquidity in the wholesale markets reduces by 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%? By the time you got to 30%, many banks would not have been able to roll over their commercial paper. It wasn't a rocket scientist job. A lot of the mathematicians that were supporting, they were doing what they wanted, their bosses wanted them to do. They were writing models, the assumptions for which could not be validated. And I'm not a mathematician. So that's the answer to your question. Is it not the case that by that stage it was too late? Because you would have to have the regulations right across the board. You would have to have regulated layman's. You would have to have regulated everything in America. Not right? It wasn't enough to regulate what was going on in the UK. I don't, so, I, but, uh, do you not think it's by the time you cottoned on to what was going on, the sin had taken role far too deep? Do you think it, it hadn't got beyond the stage where it couldn't be that. corrected? In 2005, uh, everybody was in a position. By the end of 2004, it, it was clear that things were going in the wrong direction. I've just done... Uh, with a professor from Cranfield, a big survey into the risk management fraternity as to what they thought the causes and implications of the crisis were. More than 60% said they knew the crisis was coming. And of that 60%, 50% of that 60% said they knew in Q1, and they're all very experienced risk managers. I can, I can, I can do all the uh, analytical data. It was not too late... The, uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the primary, the primary accountability for this crisis starts at the governments and the regulators. You don't need to know anything to know that if you run an economy which is based on excessive consumer spending, which is based on uh, excessively easy credit, which is based on excessively increasing asset prices... By the way, that is a, it, it's an unreality, property prices going up by that, which by, by themselves were increased by the excessively easy credit, is a recipe for disaster. You, and Gordon Brown, uh, I, I'm not politically affiliated, by the way. I've never been, I've voted for all parties. I have no political affiliation. But anybody who knows anything about economics knows that that is an unsustainable, foolish model. And Gordon Brown should have resigned. And by the way, he said... You'll have heard him say it, global circumstances beyond our control. How many people out of our 600 global respondents to our survey agreed with him? Have a guess. Three. Three people out of 600 professionals said they agreed with Gordon Brown that the crisis was called by global circumstances beyond anyone's control. That's sophistry, that's Pharisee behaviour. He should have resigned over what had happened, and he didn't. And he carries on and he carries on and nobody gets held to account for anything. Sorry to get into the detail of that when I'm really... You're for another one, aren't you? Here. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering what do you think the risks are at the moment with the banks? They're run by the same people. That's the biggest risk. How did Lloyds Bank buy HBOS? I mean... 
don't even know much to realize that was a stupid thing to do. We've only just found out in the last few days that they never disclosed to their shareholders that, 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 that HBOS was insolvent when they bought it. Why did they pay £5 billion for it? We've got people in power who don't know the difference between right and wrong. And uh, HBOS should have been nationalised uh, and turned back into a community bank along with Bradford and Bingley and Northern Rock which is where it came from when it behaved. By the way, do you want as depositors to be in, depositors in a bank which has an ordinary bank here and then a bank that actually... Quite a few of the things that the investment banks do are just pure gambling. They shouldn't even be allowed as an authorised activity within a bank. They should be put into a casino. Why should my banking capital be used to support a gambling exercise. Do you want your deposits in a bank like that? I don't. So where's the political will? It's not there because the money that funds the political parties and, and the influence, it was in the city. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. It's just a... Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. It, it, without a shadow of a doubt. It will happen until us lot start to do something about it. I would like to bring this closer to home uh, and to the private misery of the Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian Mutual Society. So this isn't about you. It would be very interesting to know whether there was anybody responsible in the Presbyterian Mutual Society for managing risk. There wasn't even a whistleblower. So we don't even have Paul here. One of the, the key issues that you have raised is about balance of power in institutions. Balance of power is a classic Presbyterian uh, doctrine. It wasn't even applied, as far as we can see, within a so-called Presbyterian mutual society. So there are issues for people here who are Presbyterians. Who was responsible for managing risk. In that sense, when you go for higher returns, there is greater risk. And one of the things you did not mention is that the pressure to deliver dividends on banks, which all our pension funds are involved in, uh, puts pressure on banks to produce higher results. So issues around risk affect all of us. But I just want to make the point that this is not about something out there. There is an institution which lots of Presbyterians have been involved in, and some of these issues are in there. Who manages, who managed risk? Thank you. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think, Paul, necessarily you want to comment on? The, the only thing I'd, I'd say is uh, read the, the last three slides that I couldn't go through in any detail and make sure the next time you focus and make sure you focus on those three areas. Um, I think um, actually what I wanted to ask was, was kind, of, kind of in some way linked to, to all that stuff that was there was 
um, is I think the point that was trying to be made was that obviously we as as consumers drive the the products, drive the things that the banks are selling to us. I mean, I actually work for Halifax, <laughs> so great um, bank. I mean, you know, the frontline stuff I loved. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, I've, I've loved being here. I mean, it's, I think um, uh, I mean, it's, it's brilliant stuff. Um, but I mean, we, I, I deal with customers all the time who are in debt up to their eyeballs and who blame the banks. But it's, but it's, it's again at the same time them who've set their eyes on um, things that they really couldn't afford. Um, so people who want to hang themselves and the banks who give them the rope um, and the banks who hang themselves with it. My that's, question... that's where the, the, the balance between solidarity and subsidiarity mm. is so important. It's vitally important for a fiduciary institution like a bank not to lend people money mm. that will put them into misery. Mm. So you used a, 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 quite a strong expression about we give them the rope and they hang themselves. That's something that shouldn't... You, Forget the regulation for a moment. If you're the chief executive of a bank uh, who really wants to have a good culture, you are going to be really concerned as to the level of borrowing. Whereas James Crosby and, mm. and, and, the, and the, the, the structure there was, lend them whatever we can get away with because their property prices are going up, so our well, credit risk well, isn't going to... So carry on. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. Thank you. Um, it's, so I think my my question kind of is that what perhaps would be say three or four of the simplest things that everyone in this room can go away and do that kind of implement some of the sort of social changes and some of the, the socially responsible purchasing, um, investing, the the way we just handle our own finances that that can contribute to a uh, influence in this sort of change in the way we deal with money. What are some right, of those so things we can do? That is a, a, a brilliant question. And um, it's probably the single most difficult question to answer. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the personal responsibility that people have to, you know, in their own community lives to discuss those things. But I, I don't really think that um, without some kind of state and political intervention, we can blame any ordinary individual um, for getting carried away. If we lead them all the time into thinking that, that's, that the, the most important thing in their life is me more now, you know, honestly, I, I really believe people would be released from a slavery if, um, I mean, I used, I, I mean, you know, I, I, I've been through that stuff. I, you know, I thought, oh, God, I've lost all that money. You know, the less I've had, the happier I've been. I mean, it's a stra- I'm not saying I didn't have a huge amount, and I'm not saying I'm blessed, but, you know, I, I, I think... I'll tell you what the most important thing we've got to do is we've got to find a way of bringing all the groups of people within our sphere, it might be within 500 miles, together at a conference, because I know there are millions and millions of people who agree with everything that we say and actually creating an energy behind changing the political paradigm. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I used to think parliamentary democracy was one of our great institutions. But it isn't. What he said there in the encyclical, you know, where politics is simply about the consolidation of power and, and business is simply about the maximisation of profit. We've got the wrong leadership 
And that doesn't just mean the Labour Party, it means the Conservative Party. It means... No wonder people are voting for the BNP. They can't think of anybody else to vote for. Can they? So what we've got to do is we've got to get 50 independent in MPs into, into part and start actually causing some trouble. We've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to campaign for the removal of private funding of political parties. That is, to me, that is the single most important thing we can do. So go away and talk about it and get going. <laughs> I think we'll do two, oh, three more. Okay. Uh, I think you were earlier on, so I'll ask you first. Gone on rather longer than I thought. Just going, just going back to your 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 faith. I'm over here, here this way. Yes, I can see you. Okay. Uh, just, uh, do you think while you, while you're on committee, the um, the bank uh, was aware of your Catholic faith? No. And, and what? And you were giving these explanations. As I, a loony Catholic? No, I never, ever professed my faith in my business environment before the last couple of years. In fact, I was... Sorry, I was talking about that, but it was you, sorry. No, I never did. But do you know something? After I did the choice, when I mentioned my faith, several people came up to me and said, Oh, you were completely mad to do that. That's going to destroy your credibility. And I said to this chap, I said, I don't care. I said, go to hell anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're so pathetic about our faith in, 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 in the United Kingdom. It's just dreadful. There's a sort of embarrassment about it. What's wrong with believing in God, for goodness sake? I'm a data rational person. Surely if I can say that faith means something and, it, and it's given me peace and joy, somebody ought to believe me. Paul, I take on board what you have to say about the common good and uh, the way in which we can pull in folk of all kinds of convictions and faiths and ideologies. But uh, this is, a, of course, a contemporary Christianity lecture. And uh, I suppose, really, the focus has to be on what we do within uh, the community of the Church of Jesus Christ. And surely there are challenges here as to the way in which Christians live and the kind of example that we're called to provide uh, for the world around us. And that example, of course, means giving leadership. Mm. Now, those of us who are ministers or priests or whatever within the church, or elders or whoever else, uh, I suppose have that responsibility of uh, thinking through and processing uh, uh, ideas as to uh, how, as a Christian community, we might be able to confront all of these evils that you have been speaking about. Uh, and uh, regulating within ourselves uh, the kinds of symptoms of uh, greed and uh, avarice and selfishness and everything else that uh, have caused these problems. I mean, what can we be doing as uh, Christian folk? Uh, how should we be, for example, changing our buying patterns, for example? Uh, where should we be putting our money? Uh, some Presbyterians put it in the Presbyterian Mutual Society, as you have heard, and uh, we're going to have to talk about that as a denomination. But uh, what guidance as a risk manager can you give to folk within the church as to how we might start to make a difference that possibly could be noted by society around us? Well, I don't think we need to be um, 
terribly neurotic about it. I just think we need to do a little bit. Um, I mean, if I was going to set policy about that, I might say, any time you buy a L'Oreal product, which is advertised with the strap line, you're worth it, you must add an extra 10% to it and hypothecate it for development aid. So, I mean, if I was a politician, I would say all luxury goods are fine, but we're going to add an extra 10% VAT, and it's going to be hypothecated. That's separated out, put in a pot for development aid. So, in a sense, you, you can create your own system of that. Obviously, you have to have your own self-regulation. But do you know what, I, do you know what I'd, I'd, I'd rather you all did? I'd rather you all went out and find the Martin Luther Kings of the world who can profess what it is that we've got to do in a powerful way and evangelize it, evangelize the policies of Jesus Christ. You know, let's have the policies of Jesus Christ operating in this world rather than the policy. And by the way, you know, obviously, we've all, we've all sinned, you know, we all sin all the time, you know, we've got to ask forgiveness for that, but let's just get out and let's start finding some leaders and let's consolidate those leaders together and let's start making a difference. Let's start building a better world. The world's gone mad. And we're the worst of it because you know what? We're the ones who got there first with the greed and the vanity and the pride. Now we're teaching the Asians to do it. There won't be a world left in 100 years because the climate change thing is caused by excessive consumption. Let's go for a different measure. So, yes, uh, you know, I could work... I'll, if you want me to work out a sort of structure by which you buy things... I, don't know, I mean, I'm not saying I'm right, but, I mean, there's, you know... D don't buy things from bad companies, you know, and um, if you buy luxury goods, put 10% aside and give it to Mary's Meals, which is a fantastic charity, or any other charity you like. <laughs> Sorry. I, I'm going to allow just one last question. I hope it's a good one. Um, I know you're probably all tired and you're probably buzzing with stuff that you want to think about. You don't have to rush off. Um, do talk to each other. Um, you might even manage to corner Paul if you're lucky. And uh, also, if you, would, if you would sign up, there are sheets over here. If you give us your contact details, we can let you know when our website's working <laughs> and then we can, we can be in touch with you and let you have access to materials and so on. So if, you'd, if you want to hear from us again, um, the sheets over here with a pen give us your email address or whatever you have and we'd love to hear from you Paul you talked about the political parties but what you didn't talk about was the auditing profession who are essentially the people to whom we largely look to to do whatever and from my perspective and it's from a very personal experience of three of the people not KPMG um, you had a lot of familiarity with how that business worked and before you even got there, you knew you weren't getting an independent report. So fundamentally, most of us rely on private and public companies, on auditors. I, I think you've raised an incredibly important point. And I wouldn't just call it auditors. I'd call it professional services as a whole. He who pays the piper calls the tune. And, you know, having worked in an audit firm... By the way, I didn't fit in there either because I always told the clients the truth. And uh, they didn't really like that very much. 
Having said that, I was the top performing financial sector partner at KPMG London by a country mile. But it's a real, real problem. Um, auditing, uh, legal advice, give me your watch and I'll tell... I've sat in rooms with auditors where I've said there's a statutory duty to report because there's an investor protection problem. And I've heard them Pharisee their way into the answer they first thought of. I can't stand it. And, you know, it's such a shame because they have such a powerful position in society. Professional services is one of the big problems, you know, because they want to just tell the client they want what they want to hear. How many advisors do you really find that have the decency? I'll bet you the Presbyterian Mutual Society had advisors that came in who probably knew what was wrong, but never told them because they thought they might lose a fee. It's, the, it's a very, very important question. Somebody's got to write quite a the, the Actually, one of the biggest causes of the financial crisis was the uh, Financial Reporting Council's international accounting standards, which allowed them to mark to market, which is a technical term, Basically, they allowed them to put on their balance sheets a, 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 a thing, an asset, at a value, when in fact there was a volatility associated with that asset between, you know, 50% up and 50% down. Well, if you're in your home life... Uh, do you do that with your assets? Do you say, oh, well, my, that share in that, uh, you know, uh, diesel-powered nuns company, oh, well, I, I'm not going to rely on that for my... But, you know, you know in your own heart that that's not a place, and yet they put it on their balance sheets as if it was worth something. Honestly, in the space of a few months, assets on the balance sheet of banks, subprime loans. What kind of expression is that? Subprime worthless, I'd call them, uh, went from being worth $1.25 in the dollar to five cents in the dollar. That's what marked to market. And the chief financial officer of a bank, a very big one, said to me, I think one of the biggest causes was accounting standards designed for a different purpose. That meant that he knew when he was the chief financial officer, he knew that his balance sheet was not robust. And yet he just followed the rules blindly of the accounting standards. And guess who conspired with the accounting standards people? The banks. They all sat in the room and said, right, well, how can we report the highest profits possible? You know, we'll make these things worth something else. I mean, honestly, it's dreadful. Truth? Forget it. <laughs> Paul, thank you very much. Should for... we do a prayer? One last short yeah. one? You want to pray with us? Yes. Okay. I'm just going to do this scripture reading from St. Peter's first letter. You have been obedient to the truth and purified your souls until you can love like brothers in sincerity. Let your love for each other be real and from a pure heart. Your new birth was not from any mortal seed, but from the everlasting word of the living and eternal God. This is the word of the Lord. 
go in peace and do lots of interesting things with the creativity that you've been given. Um, and do give us your email address. Uh, can we give Paul another big round of applause? I'm going to sit down after all that. Thank you.